the ball spins 96% of the time in the middle of the pitch. It's only the two two percentiles that it spins in the two penalty boxes that actually matter. It's what happens there that matters. And so our whole premise is, you know, you construct an investment portfolio based on what you don't know. So you you make it so that it performs its best in the extremes because making it so that it performs its best in the expectation means you won't perform very well at all. And so that's sort of the point of that piece. You know, it, it's not predicting what you think you know. It's constructing resilience for what you don't know. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. clearer by the day and in our global macro series i along with my co-host jim kasang want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro driven world will look like we want to explore their perspective on a host of important issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations our guest today is like jim an expert in the world of volatility And he also possesses an extraordinary gift in explaining complex matters in a way most people will understand. So please enjoy our conversation with Dave Dredge. Podcast, and thank you so much for joining Gemini today for what I'm sure will be a passionate and fun conversation on a few explosive topics, no doubt. Now, since this is not your first time on our podcast, let me suggest to our listeners that if they want to learn more about your background, and they should go and listen to your conversation with Harry as part of the Volatility series published on the 12th of January 2022, which actually makes it almost a year since we last had you on. How are you doing? I'm great. Life is good in Singapore. Nice and warm here, unlike Chicago, I hear. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, there are many different paths we can go and many different topics we can start out with, but I'd like to start out with um, something that I think, I mean, this year, I guess, will be remembered for a few different things. Um, but I think one of them will be the fact that at least at the time of us speaking, uh, investors probably lost more in their bond portfolio than they did in their stock portfolio. And so this is not the kind of balance that they have been hoping for or looking for and that we've been used to uh, and enjoyed during this kind of carry regime we've had for a couple of decades leading into the roaring 20s as some financial media outlets managed to name this decade. So if you don't mind, can you take us into this topic and share some of the things that you've been writing about um, in your excellent monthly updates that everyone should subscribe to. Um, when it comes to the 40, and of course, if you want to talk about the 60, feel free to do that as well. Uh, thanks, Niels. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you guys inviting me in for the chat. Um, yeah, I've been you know, 
I've been writing forever and talking forever that the the 60/40, the basic optimized portfolio model, is is wrong. It it the 40 uh, is holding capital out of the things that participate in the market and not providing sufficient and eventually not providing any protection to the portfolio and the the correlation that the sharp world mathematics as i tongue-in-cheek refer to the traditional financial math mathematics the correlation that this whole thing was premised upon was artificially generated from the sort of greenspan put era onwards that created this negative correlation between bonds and stocks when central bank implemented a reaction function of cutting interest rates when asset prices fell and that created this sort of multi-decade faux benefit of holding those two things together and and in essence reducing the capital requirement of your portfolio by both a, a kelly criterion reduction of exposure mindset and this positive carry correlation benefit but inevitably when interest rates get to zero it is not going to be risk mitigating it's going to be risk additive and and we got to zero and then some and then we did a whole bunch of qe and made it even worse and i think in my you know referring to my writing i think in my december 2020 note i titled it inflation is upon us 6040 is dead and fair enough. Yeah, yeah that that's uh, absolutely. Now, I'm I'm just wondering, just staying a little bit on on the on the forty. Um, so I'm just curious, why do you think when interest rates got to zero, and as you rightly point out, in some parts of the world they became negative? Why do you think all of these quote unquote smart investors who run all these big pension funds uh, and other um, you know massive uh, portfolios, why was it so difficult for them to to see this risk, and and let me put it in context. I'm Danish by background, and I read recently and and heard also some um, some uh, uh, podcast about the largest pension fund in Denmark called ATP, and in their September uh, update for the f first three quarters of the year 2022, I think they published, if I'm not mistaken, a loss of 47 percent of their strategic reserve capital. That's in nine months. This is crazy stuff. I mean, and and you know, yeah, interest rates have gone up a lot, but they haven't gone up to levels where they could go to if if we have a resurgence next year of inflation. But but I'm just curious, why do you think that it's it was? I mean, most most you know, simple math would have worked out that this was not a great portfolio yeah. structure anymore. <laughs> yeah, I you know, in my in my sharp world note i wrote as you know a, a piece i entitled is sharp world closing in september of this year and i opined in essence that the you know i don't know if it's a chicken or the egg but the the financial fiduciary industry along with the financial mathematics what i call sharp world the whole bachelor random walk Gaussian, normal distribution, efficient market hypothesis, modern portfolio theory, capital asset pricing market model, sharp ratio, value at risk, fraud, 
has conspired for the financial fiduciary industry. In essence, it was a bribe to financial fiduciaries to enrich themselves at the expense of foregone compounding for the end capital owners and allow governments the world over to blow through 100% debt to GDP numbers in every major country in the world virtually. And, and the only way you could get savers to hold this stuff is to dupe them into it through their pension funds and insurance companies and banks that bought this stuff on a sharp world mathematic risk regulatory accounting reporting uh, annual return incentive structure that loaded everybody up in the financial fiduciary world with this debt to the disbenefit of the end capital holders. And, and then, you know, my point of my is sharp world closing piece. And now that we know that who's going to own all the bonds. So who's going to own these bonds now, even if, you know, yeehaw, they yield 3% now instead of zero still, you know, this year's the numbers you quoted 40 something percent losses you're not going to compound those back at 3% coupons for a really, really long time. And probably never, particularly, again, as you noted, as most of these countries in Europe and the UK and Asia are running double-digit inflation price stability numbers. You, know, you still have this fantastic you know, problem. The, the UK and their LDI investment thing exposed to the world, Bank of England can't let long-dated guilt yields go above 4% or the entire pension system running levered versions of sharp world optimized portfolios blow up. Meanwhile, they're fighting 10, 11, 12% inflation. And so you're trying to get people to hold on to bonds at 4% yields in a 12% inflation environment because you can't let rates go up. And now this is a, is a pathway to disaster and why I get to at the end of my sharp world piece that the, the premise around sharp world closing probably isn't that they're going to let everyone leave the amusement park. It probably is. They're going to close the gates and make sure everybody stays inside. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And I want to let uh, Jim get in here with, with some of his uh, topics. Um, but before I do, I do want to just quote you a little bit from this sharp world. I thought uh, it was just fantastic. Right? Well, everything you write is fantastic. But I love this when you wrote uh, from that piece, we think of sharp world as a metaverse fantasy land where fiduciary wealth managers' dreams all come true. In sharp world, historical volatilities and correlations always remain constant. Geometric compounding paths are irrelevant. Tails are never fat. Leverage is not risk. Frequency matters more than magnitude. And ensembles averages dominate time averages. Hens lay soft boiled eggs. <laughs> so that's just a really <laughs> good way of, of starting out a piece like that. Jim, where do you want to go with with our conversation today? Yeah, I think that's a perfect lead-in, actually, because you know, at the end of the day, the the Fed has driven that correlation more than anything, and the success of sixty forty, in my opinion, um, they've created more linear, uh, simple reaction functions because they are the ten thousand pound gorilla in the room that's been able to control. An otherwise uh, much more random system and much more nonlinear system. Um, you you talk uh, quite a bit about Mandelbrot and fractals and volatility clustering. You know, for those of us in the volatility space, this is kind of a very intuitive concept, right? Uh, if we've been 
out there looking at nonlinear things and how things work. Um, you kind of learn that by experience, if nothing else. Um, can you speak uh, about how you look at fragility kind of in general? And then kind of more importantly, how do you think about it, you know, more specifically in the context of the Fed being forced to step away and uh, a bit less control on, uh, you know, and a system that that has, um, you know, with inflation, uh, you know, they have a dual mandate all of a sudden that they have to, uh, you know, adhere to. And then, you know, what that also causes, in my opinion, you know, from a macro extent, which is critical global trends, reversal of critical global trends as well that have been tied to that Fed policy, like globalization and uh, inequality and, you know, corporate versus labor power. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts just broadly. I wrote back in uh, August 2021 a piece on self-organized criticality, sort of uh, applying the, the sand pile theory principle and said then, you know, that it, when everybody asked me what I thought the biggest risks were, given what I do for living, people ask me that all the time. And I said, well, interest rates going up, obviously. And everybody said, well, why would they let that happen? And I said, I don't know. I assume because they decided to. And I, I, you know, to this day, I still think that's the best description of what happened. They decided rates should go up. You know, it didn't just sort of magically happen. They decided to do it because the the negative externality of foregone price stability was more costly than their ongoing desire to forever propping it up. I analogized the withdrawal from Afghanistan in that piece that the US the might of the US military decided to let the Taliban take over all of Afghanistan they could have prevented it forever but that came with a cost they were unwilling to bear so they left and it happened in a weekend so i i think you know we think of fragility in terms of sort of most specifically speaking, uncapitalized tails in the system. The system, again, particularly driven by the, the sharp world fiduciary participants, financial institutions, obviously last time around 2008, it was very much the banking system and the, the failings, the flaws in their sharp world regulatory structure Basel I, that allowed them to tranche and construct through derivative innovation, triple uh, A super senior tranches of subprime CDOs and call them zero RWAs and lever them infinitely. And so at exactly the time they were trading as though they were the closest thing in the world to US treasuries, the least risky thing in the world, which was driven to that pricing because of the infinite layers of leverage applied to them, they were the biggest uncapitalized tail risk in the world. And so a, a very small uh, change in the correlation of house prices from what was implied to create that AAA super senior tranche wiped out all of the capital in the global banking system. Right? And so that's kind of the way we think of fragility. And I you know, have said out loud any number of times in the current world, I argue that 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 uncapitalized risk is in the the lack of capital supporting the 40 in all of today's versions of 60-40 LDI risk parity, where that 40 was deemed to be risk reducing. It actually reduced the amount of capital you held against the 60 in its various versions and much less holding capital for the 40. 
And so that's left the Fed and all the other central banks. And I think the Fed, and I think we'll probably talk about this as we go, the Fed is the least of the problem. The Fed is in, you know, arguably one of the better circumstances in the world of central bankers. The rest of the central banks in the world are all hoping they can uh, coattail ride on the Fed's soon-to-arrive immaculate recession, and that there's going to be this beautiful recession that's going to save the world for everybody because rates won't have to go up. But now you're in this thing, as we were talking before, where you know they've got to walk this tightrope where they need. They can't raise rates so much that they blow up this leverage in the fixed income fiduciary savings pool, but they need to raise rates enough that they curtail, they restore price stability. Otherwise, that's going to blow up the back end of all the fixed income markets in the world. And so they're sort of walking that tightrope and and playing the, you know, usual mythology games of neo-Keynesian economists by saying, oh, we, you know, we have to protect jobs. All the same stuff that Arthur Burns said were the mistakes that he made in the 70s. They're making all the same mistakes today and trying to soft step and be very asymmetric. You know, they they don't have lengthy meetings and guidance and talks about blah, 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 when they need to slash rates to zero and, and jack up QE $7 trillion. The, the asymmetry around their measures of inflation being 20 basis points below their target is a hell of a lot different than when it's 800 basis points above their target. It's unbelievable, right? Now they've got to plan and signal and guide and we're, we're not even thinking about thinking about tapering and now we're going to slow down purchases and we're going to signal you months in advance before we're going to do an initial hike and you know, they play this game and, and that game has gotten them in trouble as they're fallen way behind and the further you're behind, the more you subsequently have to do. Jay Powell's the only one that has shown any understanding of this problem and i will argue the fed through you know all of their uh post repo crisis in september 19 and bailing out the fixed income markets in march 2020 is the one who was most cognizant of the amount of leverage in the fixed income markets and has done the best job of keeping the yield curve as inverted as possible to protect the back end of their fixed income markets so that's sort of kind of all over the place, Jim, but kind of where my head's at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I kind of, uh, I wrote about this about six months ago, but I've kind of likened where we are to this sumo match, right? It used to be these kind of little skinny, scrawny uh, kind of wrestlers, uh, and they've just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. It's still been a very kind of balanced, we've been at some kind of equilibrium because of, you know, despite the increased potential energy between the two because of the balance and because of the Fed's ability uh, to control that that game. But I, I think the issue is imbalance, right? The second you start to get imbalance, given how much more potential energy there is in the system, it just becomes a much more dynamic system. And um, I think we're um, in a much more dynamic system. And I think that the thing that ultimately will uh, kick off uh, something, a, a bigger fat tail ultimately is uh, you know, and something more, uh, more than just uh, what happens every five to 10 years, call it, but um, is the decreased liquidity and, and the Fed stepping away. I think that's why the Fed is so important to this whole picture. Um, so on that end, what, you know, how do you 
think about liquidity, you know, top of book liquidity and futures as well as market depth and options is dr- reduced dramatically in the last six months as the Fed has, has raised uh, interest rates. Um, you know, it's now below the 10th percentile to 0th percentile, depending on what metrics you look at. Um, you know, as you and I both know, we've both been in this business for some time. Liquidity and uh, and volatility are our cousins, right? They're very they're kind of two sides of a, of a similar coin. Um, love to hear just your general thoughts about how you see the relationship of the two, uh, and and how you've witnessed their interplay in you know play out in different markets in 2022, and 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 what you see kind of for liquidity in 2023 and, and its potential effects. Yeah, it's a, it's exactly. I mean, we think of ourselves as, you know, we call ourselves value investors in volatility, but really we're just stores of highly convex liquidity. We're just big stores of liquidity. And, and we're looking for those places where those uncapitalized tails exist such that when markets move into them, uh, liquidity becomes desired desperate even and you know in general in 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 our world and i think maybe big picture with what we're talking about right now again i would argue the u.s market looks pretty good looks good if you look much more closely under the hood in europe or certainly in china what's been going on there it's it's a much more complicated problem now, as I know Niels is a fan of some of my writing about Japan. Japan has a particularly unique uh, challenge having maintained an interest rate peg, a hard peg, for you know far too long at levels that are unsustainable, which you know a famous stand one of the standard dredgisms is pegs in badly and all pegs end. And that's going to be one of the most interesting things we see in, the, in the, the liquidity. And so the world we operate in, Jim, where we're really looking to absorb volatility supply and we're not trading in you know, active, liquid, high-frequency markets like VIX or even exchange-traded vol in general, but we're absorbing volatility supply in the complex structured product markets and across asset classes and around the world. So we're looking to absorb that liquidity cognizant that that's likely to be the place where liquidity is in the most demand so you know an obvious example coming through this year and what we've seen this year you know interest rates has really been the place um and and interest rate volatility is what everybody wanted to sell whether they knew they were selling it or not because generally the you know the the form that they're selling it is in simple callable note structures. They may not even think that they're selling volatility when they're buying that 20-year, two-year call because it became so accustomed to that just behaving like a two-year bond and you just mark it as a two-year in your books if you're a Taiwanese insurance company or a German pension fund or whatever, um, Japanese bank. And so that, you know, that, that burst on supply of volatility from really summer of 2020 through summer of 2021 across Korea and Australia and Japan and U.S. and then really Europe, 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 the, the reversal of that when rates did move and then you get into the stuff that you know, Niels may not want Jim and I to talk about, but you get into Vanna and Volga problems in that world where the the book runners so you think about the volatility that has occurred in interest rate space and i'm really talking swaption space more so but you've seen it as well on on 
euro dollar futures and euribor futures and etc but really in the longer dated interest rate swaption space that volatility is simply the pain of the dealers in trying to hedge these products the guy who short the end volatility in all of those products still owns it on his books not marked to market and so this is one of those classic examples much again like we saw with mortgage securities back in 2008 where the real losses are in the system just nobody's accounted for them yet and the concept of volatility in some of these markets should and I'm who's to say they ever will but should the end holders of those things ever come to the market and say hey I need to unwind this stuff I don't you know either I don't want to or my regulator won't let me or I can't now take something that I've had on my books as a as a 2 year 3 year 4 year duration that's now a 20 year 30 year 40 year duration at the zero yields I I want to get rid of it and and to me that's really the yet to come <laughs> problem with liquidity in the interest rate space and and that problem exists in interest rates in, in a scale that that just never came back again in equities after what happened in March of 2020 yeah i think this is an interesting topic that uh, yeah again we we might go a little no, too far down this road no, Niels might have to break this up this is love fest but but the uh, the reality is um you know if you look at Equity vol, for example, as a proxy uh, for kind of how vol tends to perform as a function of uh, liquidity and dealer positioning, right? You kind of brought up the specter of dealer positioning. You got my, uh, you got me me uh, excited about this topic. But the 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 reality is, over shorter time time frames, meaning months, quarters, maybe a year, um, dealer positioning uh, really is a very strong predictor, a negative predictor for, for volatility. So, you know, if you look at equity vol, it's a, it's a U really in terms of risk adjusted returns, just historically, right? Um, the lower, for most of that data set, the lower vol is, uh, the worse the performance is for that volatility in the short term. And I know you're making the opposite argument, but I think that's because you're looking over longer timeframes. Um, and, uh, you know, from, from our data, essentially, and we saw this in 2017, again, so few people talk about 2017 and the, how historic and important it, it, it was, but it was, you know, the lowest uh, realized and implied volatility in 150 years of equity history, and not by a, a few percent, by by 30 percent, right? Um, and, and the driver of that, we know that because of uh, a lot of data we can get into later or maybe on a different show, but, but, but because of, of implied vol supply and, and the compression that came from that during that period. So reflexively, there's this, uh, there's this effect where, you know, this isn't tornado insurance we're selling at the end of the day or, or buying, right? This, this, uh, this insurance is affected by the actual insurance uh, in the market. There's this reflexive effect. And that's so critical to markets uh, in the short term and that essentially leads to over leverage, uh, things going too far one direction. And then eventually, as we saw after 2017, right, uh, XIV blow out a, a bigger kind of spike when it finally does need to under some conditions reverse. So I agree over longer time frames, you're, you're essentially stretching the rubber band and creating a bigger tail. But um, ironically, in the short term, you know, it, it can be actually 
off, not can be, usually is the worst kind of period uh, to, to buy kind of uh, low, uh, kind of increasingly lower volatility. But again, uh, it's a matter of time frames. It's a matter of trying to navigate that. And, and that relationship is, is kind of one of our challenges in the long volatility space, understanding what's, what does cheap actually mean and over what time frame. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you've thought about that and then how you've seen that interplay maybe this year and what, what you think uh, in different markets going forward. Yeah, cheap, cheap, cheap is what we do. It's and it is unbelievably subjective. I mean, we're you know, we're a little bit unique in our world, in that I, I I don't know. You you guys know more people than I do, but but we're probably as broad geographically an asset class as anybody that does what we do. And maybe some of your listeners will call and and correct me on that, Niels. But um so you know how we decide what is good value like i said we call ourselves value investors in volatility and and you're right jim we we tend to be much longer term than most people's perception that that we're much much longer dated than most people perceive us to be um we're probably more diverse than most people even think we are um it comes down to understanding the supply and demand for us. It's really, and the supply that we're focused on is this structured product machinery. The reason we sit in Asia is because that structured product machine, which if you go back and listen to my interview with Harry from a year ago, I was a part of in the very early days in my bankers trust businesses back in the late 80s, 80s, early 90s, creating this yield enhanced thing to monetize this financial repression that has really existed out here um, since Japanese interest rates collapsed in the late 80s, early 90s, and all of the Asian countries were pegged to the dollar and the financial repression has been a thing. And and so we really try to understand the supply, where it's coming from, what they're doing, how the banks, the, the various food chain of banks, and how they're managing the risk, both the credit risk and the complexity of the derivative risks, what their regulatory accounting risk treatments allows them to do. You know, It won't come as a surprise to most people that most bank traders who operate on a fairly short uh incentive horizon like positive carry and will optimize their their available basis risk within their hedging strategies to optimize around a positive carry structure and so knowing how they do that and where they're willing to do that helps us find things that we think are valuable knowing what's the driver of the end provider of that volatility. I used to be in that business and and had the chance to speak to companies all the time that uh, were active in these products. And when you get a guy, uh, we, we tell the story about the Korean FX fall. So one of the biggest movers in 2008 was Korean FX fall. So we show a picture showing that, you know, VIX went up, 3x and Korean FX fall went up 12x. And the reason Korean FX fall went up 12x isn't because it was a Korean crisis, it's because of the structured product dynamics, the positioning in that market. And that structured product is properly was properly properly known as a Kiko knock in, knock out. And the big exporters were all earning enhanced yields on their massive, massive surplus balances by selling complex exotic dollar call options and and i knew the main guys doing it they were the largest shipbuilding companies in the world and when i went and talked to them in early 08 and i said 
I think you guys, they call them hedges. I think you guys are hedging too much. The two largest shipbuilding companies in the world at that time both told me that day, no, Dave, you're underestimating our growth. We're hedging based upon expected 40% compounded growth for the next eight years in early 08. So these guys had basically hedged enough dollar proceeds to build enough ships that you could walk across the ocean on them. The year before, they were just about to sell no ships for the next two years. And so sure enough, when the dollar moves up, having nothing to do with Korea, the guy who should be the seller of dollars in a rising dollar environment becomes the world's most aggressive buyer of dollars, and the whole thing explodes, a la UK LDI investors, right? You would expect the UK pension funds desperate for yield would be buyers of gilts when yields went up, but it turns out they're forced panic sellers. And same thing in Korea throughout this whole process now, right? The Korean pension funds were massive holders of Korean callable note structures. So throughout the entire hiking cycle in Korea, and Bank of Korea has been relatively uh, active in, in proactive in hiking, but through the whole thing, they have to keep activating the emergency bond stabilization fund because the back end of the market keeps melting down because the pension funds are all forced sellers on these callable note structures that forces them to reduce duration because their duration's exploding on their books. Yeah, the Korean analogy is a great one. A lot of people on our side of the pond aren't, aren't as familiar, but you know the, the auto callable demand is so big, right? The part of that story you, you didn't really reference, uh, you know, we all like to, as long ball managers, talk about the the, the the powerful 15x kind of outcome when it comes uh, we we both know how rare and, and how, you know in the meantime that, that was just the widowmaker right for for so long just vol just compression in Korea was so powerful that vol would perform in other places and and just uh, you know not perform in Korea for forever um, and that's kind of how it works you know, as you know, right, there's, there's just long periods of vol compression that come from that, that supply of that dealer positioning, if you will, um, uh, that, that kind of reflexively pins something again, 2017 followed by XIV. But there can be very long stretches and very painful stretches in, in, in those. Um, how do you navigate that, I guess, A, and, and again, specific to 2022, let's, let's try and dive in, in 2023, what are you seeing? Where are their dynamics? Uh, how do you how are you going to time you know, different markets? Where are you seeing it just getting so long in the tooth um, along that path that now it's time maybe to stop in, you know, step in. You don't want to step in too soon on some of those things. So that's that, that's that's where the rubber meets the road for us, right? It's, it's, uh, I, I don't want to break anybody's opinions, but uh, we don't time anything. We have no market view. We're we don't we're neither bearish nor bullish. We aren't timing. We're simply trying to understand value. And we're, you know, we're, we're the garbage collectors of volatility. We're like distressed credit investors. If you want to sell it at 10 cents on the dollar, I'm your guy. Call me. Yeah. The question is value a function. Like does timing affect value, right? Like what is your, dis is, is your distribution always constant? Um, you know, if you're assuming your distribution is always constant, then you can be the garbage collector and just continue to buy. But you know, at, at, at a cheaper and cheaper price. But uh, if you're going to model a distribution at some point and say, hey, the distribution's different, then there's a bit of market timing, uh, you know, uh, 
defined within that. And, and so what's cheap is often a function of what does the distribution uh, look like? And again, that doesn't mean you got to predict, hey, something's happening tomorrow, but how has market structure changed? I, I'd like just love yeah. to hear your thoughts. Well, so again, I'll disappoint you a little bit here. We're not predicting anything. I'm not making any assumptions about future behavior. I'm simply making decisions about asymmetry, potential asymmetry and what we're able to source. So you know, my whole, again, my whole philosophical reference is I don't know anything. The only thing I know is that it's what I don't know that matters, right? All I'm looking for is something that's priced like it can't happen and somebody's willing to sell it to me. Now we do stuff obviously that is, is nearer on the surface, higher probabilistic outcomes because it's attractively priced and it's cheap, et cetera. But what we're really looking for, you know, we're doing that stuff. You know, we're owning gamma that's cheap because it helps us recover costs to own more stuff that's, that's out there somewhere that is, is, you know, really, really super asymmetric. Um, you know, we're very, again, we're much longer dated. We're working closely with our counterparties who have the volatility supply that they're trying to recycle. We're constantly, sort of our daily life is trying to extend duration, extend convexity, extend duration, extend convexity, extend duration, extend convexity. The complexity of a, of a, of a book that's always marching in on you, that's losing sensitivity when what you've committed to your your partners is to grow sensitivity through time in something that naturally loses sensitivity. Yeah, we commit to, and we'll go back to, I know Niels likes my, my Formula One race car analogy, you know, we're the brakes. That's it. I'm not trying to make money. I'm just trying to be the best brakes so that you can confidently go out and drive your race car as fast as you want to, knowing you've got good brakes. And the way you pay for having good brakes is you drive faster, all right? You don't, at the end of that race, at the end of that 40 lap compounding path of a Formula One race, the guy who won is the guy who had the best brakes. And yet I don't know anybody yet who really understands how to measure the contribution of the brakes, right? They're still gonna measure speed. They're still gonna measure goals scored in a football match. And yet the goalkeeper is the most important, important player on the pitch because he's what decides the compounding through multiple matches. And so we're, Jim, we're just really focused all the time on defense, all the time on making a, you know, being a bigger goalkeeper, being stronger breaks. How do we get there? And if, if, if Vol's getting cheaper, we are happy as clams. Nothing makes us happier than cheaper Vol. When a year like this year would Vol generally gets more expensive our life gets much 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 harder and so you know going into this year you know going into 2022 was easy because we had recreated the level of potential asymmetry that we had last had in february 2020 so we had once again grown to peak goalkeeping capacity and at just the right time, which is in a sense what we try to commit to our investors. I'm not trying to make money, but what I am going to do is have the biggest goalkeeping capacity right before you need it. And I grow and grow and grow and grow till we get there. Now it's much more difficult. Interest rate vol that was easy to source uh, a year and a bit ago is now really hard to source. Fortunately, there's still uh, dynamics in markets, actually more than you might think, where central banks are 
continuing to be conducive to suppressing volatility and providing liquidity to systems that still incentivizes and allows for volatility supply. FX continues to be a place where we can find opportunities. This recent move, and I heard Niels, you and Alan talking about the scale of some of the market moves in last month. I mean, the turnaround in some of these FX markets has been phenomenal and the impact on volatility is great. That creates some interesting opportunities that may come back our way, stuff that we were very active in early in the year that may have gotten a little bit pricier that we can get back in. Um, even equities for the, you know, you never know. Equity vol might, uh, in some markets might come cheap again. I, we're not, you know, S and P and VIX to us is a market. There's a that there's a lot of players in and a lot of experts. So, you know, take something pretty extraordinary there to get our attention in terms of real imbalances in supply and demand. But you know, even we noticed that SKUs, which you know was terrifyingly expensive for most of the last couple of years, isn't nearly as expensive now. We're cognizant that. Volavol is cheaper than it has been, and so we might pay a little more attention to it than we have been. It's still not what we would call cheap uh, relative to what we can find, not just in other equity markets, but in other asset classes. Credit is another one that I think in some markets in particular is maybe yeah, I, I mentioned my my new catchphrase, the the immaculate recession. There's a number of markets that are counting on the U.S. to deliver this global immaculate recession without any thought that possibly in a recession, historically tight credit spreads could somehow change. But we'll see. So I know, Jim, you probably have more questions going down that rabbit hole, and that's perfectly fine. But I do want to just uh, throw in a question, maybe for both of you, actually. You talk about this Korean shipbuilder uh, example. And so I'm just, I'm curious, first of all, also because there is obviously the the Ukrainian conflict and, and the world looks very different today than it did last time you were on the show, Dave. But I, I was just wondering, do any of you have any uh, suggestions as to where the next Korean shipbuilder is today? <laughs> well, you know, I think that in the sense of where there is a, there's been a lot of cleansing out of volatility overhang. And, you know, the biggest one was probably European interest rate vol uh, a year ago. And that's been taken a good beating and, and, you know the, in particular, the Vanna there has been phenomenal. Where, uh, you know, the 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 front end vol. If you go back to summer of 2021, two year vol was call it 40 normals, and 20 year vol was 50 normals. Now today, two year vol is 140 normals, and 20 year vol is 60 because the they all have to buy back the front end vega as their vega duration extends with the duration of these callable structures and sell out the back end vega and so you get this dynamic where you've had this double whammy of you know the US in particular extreme 
inversion of the yield curve, but also really extreme inversion of volatility surfaces, which Jim knows creates some interesting dynamics for guys like us. You're like, well, wait a minute, I can own stuff that has this positive roll dynamic to it and has a whole bunch of Vega duration in it. It gets exciting. So and forces us to, you know, make decisions about shorter dated things that need need dealing with in much higher vol environments. The obvious area nails that is still uh has a whole bunch of pending potential complications in terms of derivative overlay in the system is japan there's nothing quite like the japanese structured product market it's the oldest biggest most uh longest at zero interest rates longest with massively suppressed volatility longest with absolute certainty that it'll never go away the central bank will never change and the 10-year jgb still pegged at 25 basis points now the the market has obviously pulled away in terms of the the swap market pulling away from the bond market and the volatility on the swap markets pulling up from the crazy, you know, like I said, if you said Euro interest rate vol was at 40 in the front end last summer, and that was craziest, lowest ever in history, what well, doesn't compare at all to Japanese interest rate vol, which was at 10. And so, yeah, the balls pulled up and the swaps have pulled, you know, which had forever traded give or take flat to the bonds and now is trading, you know, maybe 2x or 3x the absolute level of the bond. So, you know, so kind of 50 to 75 basis points on the 10-year swap, depending on the day. And the, you know, tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars that the Bank of Japan buys of the JGBs almost every day and it just goes on and on and on and so to the point now you, i you took when you talked to grant uh months ago you referenced one of my notes saying that i had said something about what's going to happen when they own all of the bonds and and sure enough it happened last month you know so the the now most active on the run bond so there's three the three most on the run 10-year bonds are the ones eligible generally for the fixed rate operation the unlimited everyday buying at 25 basis points well the most on the run bond as of the end of last month they owned 109 percent of the issue of that bond <laughs> you know I'd, yeah what does it I mean, mean i don't know but no i mean it just shows you how crazy this world is now uh, again before i get to to jim and 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 so on and so forth but you you did say in in all of the fancy terminology you were using before with, with jim you did mention um something that resonated with the trend follow something along the lines like knowing what you don't know was what one of the uh, important points and you actually wrote a memo not not I, I say a memo but that's because i'm thinking about howard marks here but you wrote a piece about the pointlessness of forecasting about a month before Howard Marks wrote his memo, kind of in the same vein. So maybe you can just uh, enlighten our audience a little bit about uh, this particular point, um, because of course it speaks so much to what we do as, as systematic managers, as trend followers for all of these decades. Um, we think it is pointless to try and forecast anything. Um, and that, you know, the true value lies in realizing, knowing what you don't know and internalizing that. But, but where were you coming at it from, from your perspective? Yeah. The same point, you know, the, the, you know, we track numbers. We use the, 
long-term historical returns of the S&P and show the importance of the, the outliers. So the two percentile best months and the two percentile worst months. And so over a 40-year track, the, the, the 10 best months contribute about 30% of the long-term compounded return, and the 10 worst months contribute about minus 40%. The middle 480 months, 460 months, contribute the other 30%. And and so the point being, what matters is what happens in those two percentile tells. What, what happens outside the two standard deviations is what drives the return. And to ha- what Howard wrote, and yeah, our pieces are uncannily similar, uh, the you know, he talks about asymmetry. I talk about convexity. Uh, you know, Nassim Taleb writes about it, uh, you know, literally Frederick Hayek wrote his entire uh, Nobel Prize acceptance speech on the pretense of knowledge on the same subject. That you know, Shannon's information theory. It's what happens. The information, the entropy, is 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 what people don't expect. And if you're out buying stuff or investing in stuff or making traded decisions inside the expectation, the asymmetry of returns not likely to be very much because it's priced. At fairly it's the stuff that exists outside the expectations or even the imaginations of people where asymmetry is possible and so gets down to mandelbrot and that it's 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 magnitude not frequencies that matters and i you know i i'm sure you've seen i i draw the gaussian distribution and then entropy curve on a football pitch and draw in my contributions to the compounded returns as the area under the entropy curve which is exactly like a football match the ball spins 96% of the time in the middle of the pitch. It's only the two two percentiles that it spins in the two penalty boxes that actually matter. It's what happens there that matters. And so our whole premise is, you know, you construct an investment portfolio based on what you don't know. So you you make it so that it performs its best in the extremes because making it so that it performs its best in the expectation means you won't perform very well at all. And which is why, and you know, we talk about this all the time, you know, the, the sharp world practitioners, you know, when we pitch up and say, you know, this is you should be convex, and they say, Well, we have this problem, we haven't compounded nearly as well as we wish we had. And looking back, our expected returns were this, but we never achieved them. And we say, Well, here's your solution. It's convexity, it's 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 performing outside of expectations that makes the difference. They say, Oh, great, that's fantastic. And then going forward, Dave, what's your expected return? <laughs> so I, I don't know. I know it's better than that, but I don't know what it is. And 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 so that's sort of the point of that piece. You know, it, it's not predicting what you think you know, it's constructing resilience for what you don't know. It's so funny, actually, that you use this football pitch uh, analogy um, because, of course, in football, they have introduced something called VAR, which is kind of uh, correlates well with the terms that we use. But um, there we are. Uh, Jim, back to uh, back to your train of thought. Yeah, I wanted to kind of uh, stir it up a little bit on that topic because I think it is an important topic. And, and uh, you know, at the risk of... Uh, you know, having sounding like I, I'm going against uh, Mandelbrot and Hayek, and you know, that would make it fun. Uh, you know, right? Uh, no, right. This is, but I think it's an important 
important to dive into. I don't want to be overly simplistic in how we we talk about prediction um, and say, hey, you, there, there's no ability to gain an edge or 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 think about prediction. I think that that is, in my opinion, uh, you know, this is one of probably the few places we might disagree. I do think that you always want to have convexity, and I do think uh, I agree with the the you know lack of continuity uh, in, in real systems um, and, and how kind of the Gaussian distribution is incorrect. So we agree on all that, but I, I do think it's important to note that that there are forces enacting um, on systems, and these are real forces that you can know. I think of them as gravity as an example, right? Like they, These are physical constraints, and they're things that can change based on different scientific you know, realities, uh, you know, I think to ignore those those changes or those uh, things that we, I guess, can know, right, um, is uh, is is foolhardy, right? It, uh, um, yes, we can sit here and say, you know, the system always works as generally as such, and we're just going to assume the system is now. That doesn't mean we're predicting up or down, but you can predict and understand the forces that enact on a distribution, and hence change and slightly alter, right? how your approach might be based on that. And I think that's, that's an important distinction. And that, that harkens to kind of this idea of dealer positioning that I talk so much about. Um, you know, it's allowed us over time uh, in a real edge that, that uh, allows us to say, okay, look, the whole world is hedged here. The distribution is probably, uh, you know, there are lots of short people on the other side. That, that means that there's a fatter tail, but that it's probably much more contained during this period. And, and it doesn't mean that it, the, the tail's not possible. If anything, it means the tail might be fatter in that scenario, but it does change the distribution and, and the forces of, of supply and demand that are enacting upon the system. So there are, there are things, in my opinion, uh, you know, and we played, you know, borne that out throughout time in, in our research, um, that, that you can measure. Um, and I think the ability to measure and understand at least the general Force, uh, forces exerted upon the system, I think are very important. Um, and I think to, to, to say, and again, I don't think we're in disagreement on that. I think it's more, because we do agree on, on, on the broader thesis, right? That, that uh, you know, distributions are, are not uh, Gaussian, they're, you know, they're, they're not continuous and, and that tails themselves are underpriced. So, you know, we're, we're on you know, an agreement there, but I do think the distributions change and the forces that act upon them you know, at least some of the bigger forces that we are that are somewhat knowable um, are, um, you know, I guess knowable is you know, right, with a higher probability, right? Um, you can uh, you can measure uh, stronger, less strong. Um, uh, you know, are are important. Yeah, well, I, love to hear I, your kind of thoughts. And and again, I know your view is, hey, it's cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, if it's cheaper, just buy more. No. Um, you know, but but our again, our you know, I think there's this uh, there's this difference. I, um, you know, on our end where, again, cheap sometimes um, does not just mean less expensive because, again, the distributions change. It really is a function for us of two things. How have the forces enacting on the distribution changed, right? Um, and how do those compare the new distribution relative to how cheap things are? And I think that comparison between the two is, is very powerful. It doesn't mean you ever cut the tail, that you ever assume it's continuous and simple because it's not. But, but I think understanding and broadly um, uh, managing, uh, understanding what those major forces are that are interacting on the distribution in, in reality are important. Yeah, I, you know, listen, I'm, I, I know lots of people who have been very successful in running various 
investment strategies, whether they're systematic or macro or or stock pickers or long short or good on them. Uh, I'm just in the math business, so I, I, I'm just to me it's just math. The the mathematics of the big numbers make a much bigger difference than the mathematics of the small numbers, and what what happens near the mean of the distribution over the long run is almost meaningless to the compounded returns. And and I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of people that can actively manage risk and trade and 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 short-term chase momentum or imbalances or whatever. But you know, most pension funds or endowments or large family offices can't do that with a, a bulk of their assets. Most of them are very structurally invested and, you know, either just totally long equities or some sort of balanced portfolio or in the pension fund world, some version of a sharp world uh, premium, call it risk parity or LDI or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, we just kind of come along and say, improve your convexity. You improve your convexity, you, you, you'll improve your life. And how how people go out and figure out how to better participate in the upside, how to put to work more efficiently capital in a, in a more efficient way with better constructed diversification, uh, you know, good on them. I'll help him if I can. Uh, my job is to be the brakes, and I just want to be the, the most capable breaks I can be. And the only way I can figure out how to do that is to buy vol that I can see. Again, the, the distribution, as you put it, Jim. Yeah, yeah, we're we're not doing a... I, my job is to be the breaks too, <laughs> yeah. to be clear, right? I'm yeah. not, you know, I have a long vol fund. Like, you know, I'm not arguing to, you know, and I, I love your race car analogy, right? Um, that said, I'm going to add like a wrinkle. You don't just sit on the brakes the whole time. Right. If you sat on the whole brakes the whole time, right, you're going to, uh, yes, you might still, at least you have brakes. You know, you're not going to blow yourself up. Uh, you're going to do better than the entity, the car that didn't have brakes. But if you can uh, kind of manage those brakes, there's a lot of power, um, you know, and, and I, but I think that's more than yeah, metaphor. I'm, I'm, again, you know, I'm not I'm trying to, I'm not saying you're on the brakes the whole time, but you always have brakes on the car. You don't drive the brake, the car off the lot without brakes on it. Right. And, and you say, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to save money on my car by telling the guy, don't put brakes on this one. I don't think I'll need them. You pay the money up front for brakes on the car. Just, you know, the other thing I talk about all the time in terms, you know, the best, you know, the best institutional convexity in the world is government guaranteed deposits, right? JP Morgan pays a price for deposits. They don't complain about it every year. They don't say, oh shit, these things cost money. Let's get rid of them. It's the only reason they exist, right? They have this massive, massive book of long convexity of non-recourse leverage, and they go out and lend the money to somebody else, keep the spread for themselves, and if they don't get paid back, the government pays the depositor. It's a guaranteed win, right? Well, that's my concept of breaks, right? You want breaks all the time. Yes, those come with a cost, right? They should come with a cost. Uh, but you'll find out that by having them, using them wisely, driving faster, you, you'll never see the cost. You know, unless unless you strip down and say, you know, what did the car contribute in terms of speed? Well, these brakes didn't contribute anything. Get rid of them, right? But, you know, if, 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 
you know, nothing will get me out of a meeting faster than somebody saying, oh, but what's this line? You know, it's as, you know, Nassim said once to, I believe, in an argument with a gentleman from AQR, he said, uh, we, we managed to find clients that add, that can add two numbers together. Yeah, we just talked about the Universa AQR spat actually on a on a podcast with Niels just just uh, a week ago or not even. Um, but uh, I, I will. I, I'd love to just last last thing here is to kind of pull on the final piece of this thread, which is okay. We have we agree broadly, right? We're long vol managers. We agree on 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 uh, kind of the, the major concept. Our implementation and how we might do it obviously might be different based on on some uh, some views given. Now let's put rubber meets the road here. I think listeners would find this interesting. Given that and how you approach it, what are you seeing as cheap now? What what are you? And I'll, I'll give you kind of my my thoughts, uh, and, and I think that'll maybe be interesting to the listener, kind of uh, how they might approach well, that at this point. As we say, we're agnostic. We don't have views. I really don't care what the underlying is. It can be potatoes for all I care. But the underlying, in fact does matter because underlying to a great extent drives the appetite for the supply of volatility. So we tend to find the cheapest volatility, the greatest volatility supply around underlyings where there's somebody, uh, where there's a, a whale who's actively suppressing volatility and generally the, in, in the act of that suppression providing liquidity to the system. So the obvious one right now is Japan. Right. Nowhere else is there a guy who's providing unlimited hundreds of billions of dollars a month in 10-year liquidity at 25 basis points in this world. And that means that throughout Japan and the structured product overlay there, which is a larger derivative canopy than any other shade tree in the history of the world, is probably the best place to go look. Now, conveniently, right next door to it, just across the water is is the guy who was the single largest almost the singular creator of credit for the last 12 years in the entire globe who also conveniently has a central bank who is actively suppressing volatility in the form of their currency which then also leads to an suppressed volatility in interest rates who is incenting right now uh large state-related institutions to buy bonds. So they're, in effect, doing quasi-informal QE again in China. And so those two countries right now, relative to the rest of the world, are not fighting inflation. Now, doesn't mean, particularly in the case of Japan, they don't have inflation, but they're not fighting it. And they're actively providing vol-suppressing liquidity in both of those markets. And so that creates some interesting opportunities for us. I still wouldn't totally disregard what's going on in Europe. I know that sounds maybe bizarre, given how much uh, some things have moved in Europe. But the, the ongoing in essence, provision of QE, the ECB is not shrinking their balance sheet. The ECB is still technically through TPI providing QE to anybody who actually needs it. The ECB has hardly lifted their policy rate above zero as inflation is skyrocketing and bonds, you know, for whatever reason, naturally or artificially, are still at extraordinarily low yields in the back end as 
LDI managers in countries that Niels is very familiar with continue to hold massively levered positions. And the and and, and rightly so, you know, if you want to pick a place that should have a recession, it's probably Europe, right? The uh, the impact of fifty percent annual PPI increases on industrial nations is probably a, a good path to a recession. So maybe bond yields should stay really, really low. But the fact that they are, and you have this massive inversion of yield curves and vol services means if you have the the willingness and appetite to go further, further, further out vol surfaces, uh, there are interesting opportunities both in rates and and uh FX space. FX, again, generally is another thing that is interesting in all of those markets and, and credit. And so, you know, we, we, I did a call with some people not too long ago who were saying, is there anything left to buy? And I said, well, you know, I'll get on a call and I'll explain it to you. And they're like, oh, sh- Dave's going to talk about Vanna and Volga and stuff. Uh, they said, okay, make it simple. Where can you still find stuff? And I said, I'll make it simple. Japan, China, and Europe. They were like, whoa, that is simple, and that can't be true. Uh, Yeah, it can. And it comes down to the same thing, Jim. It comes down to central bank largesse in liquidity provision and vol suppression. And and then you got sort of different dynamics where you have, in some of those places, Japan in particular, you have ongoing flow of structured product activity in Europe, you have the complexity of managing a massive stock of existing structured product stuff, not necessarily new supply, but the management of Vanna and Volga as as banks go through the complexity and go from desperate to buy here and desperate to sell there. And, and, you know, whatever behavior you want to describe to the Swiss National Bank and the Bank of England and various other guys. So the one thing that we're not seeing to be blunt is equity vol. We still do not see people, you know, coming to us saying, "Hey, would you look at this? Would you look at that?" Now, you know, maybe a little infrequently, but you know, the obviously the you know the last real sort of supply that we saw out here relevant in the equity vol space was June 2021, when there was a big surge of accumulator products on names like Alibaba and Tencent and Pingan. And that vol got cheap, and SKU in particular got cheap for a brief window. And then not surprisingly, those are all the ones that had the biggest blow-ups, went down the most. Now, some of those, I, you know, one of my guys told me yesterday, you know, that from the the bottom in October, Pingan's up 70% or something off the bottom. Not, still means it's down like 60% on the year, but it's up 70% from the bottom. So maybe vol supply will come back and we'll start looking at that stuff again. So again, our approach is orthogonal and I'll just weigh in very briefly, uh, but I couldn't agree more on the on the JGB kind of that uh, it is, um, that vol is incredibly cheap. That said, it's been cheap for a while and I wouldn't have agreed with you uh, a year ago, right? Um, and, and, or, two years ago, right? Um, I think the distribution of potential, again, to my analogy before, has changed. Um, And so it is cheap, which is incredibly important to that comparison of what's cheap, what's expensive, just in in absolute terms. But the distribution of outcomes because of the Fed and inflation, right? And their need to step away and no longer, 
you know, the spot, Japan sponsor is ultimately the U.S. The Japan is a bit, Japan is a big enough sponsor, but when things become hairy, ultimately, right, the Fed can um, backstop in theory Japan, um, and the, the Fed's ability to do that hasn't diminished, which is what makes that peg and that kind of control at risk, and what changes and elevates the potential tail, in my opinion, in the distribution in Japan. And those two things working together make for an incredibly powerful investment thesis um, in JGBs. So that's kind of how I think about it. I, I'm looking at that distribution a bit more and what's possible. And I know that's dangerous. That's not necessarily what you do, but but to kind of give, you know, just to give it a little bit of lip service um, on, on our end as well. In a sense, we do look at, we look at some conditionality around distributions and stuff. So we do do some work on some sort of like I don't want to sort of conditionality on uh, stuff, but right, and again, right, major forces, right, that you can kind of uh, broadly understand. Well, not so much uh, more around what ifs. So, what if? And so we do a lot of work, and this is obviously it was a big deal in what's gone on in Europe and likely to go on. You know, if we can sort of isolate parameters at really attractive levels. So if we can isolate skew or if we can isolate vol of vol type parameters. And when you get the vol supply, like we saw in Euro or in Japan prior to March of this year and going back to forever, if you could sort of isolate vol of vol at zero, it was a good buy. Timing doesn't really matter. And you can run conditional what if scenarios and it always works, right? It's massively asymmetric. And and if you can construct wing stuff where you know the cost is so de minimis, you can own that stuff. So yeah, you know, we have obviously you know we have yen stuff on the books that have been there for over a decade that that looks really good right now, right? And we also have yen stuff on the book that's been there five years, stuff that's been there four years, three years, two years, one year, six months, right? And and we've been carrying it and recovering cost and carrying it and recovering cost and you know uh, I did a podcast with uh, Grant way back you know in his Real Vision days in 2015. So we did one just before I think just before China devalued, which I had mentioned, not because I thought China was going to devalue, but because Volvo was really cheap. And I said, but yeah, that's likely to be interesting, but it's not a big deal. But what's really going to be interesting is when yin rates drop below zero and then you know january 2016 and again nobody talks about it because people around the world don't see it by far the biggest vol event in that what was sort of that little mini emerging market crisis from the china deval in august 15 through january 16 was the negative interest rate announcement by the bank of japan it was the single biggest vol move by miles. And it was just just happened to be the cheapest vol. I mean, by far the cheapest vol of anything in the world after the China deval was Japanese interest rates. And I, you know, I say all the time, you know, our job is simply to go out and find where the biggest clumps of dry trees and dry brush are. And because we're we're hedging against correlation. I'm not trying to guess when the lightning strikes coming or where the fire's starting. I'm just cognizant of the fact that whether it's lightning or kids playing with matches, that only starts one tree on fire. 
every other tree catches on fire because of the tree next to it. And so my job is to find the parts of the forest where the biggest fire risk is. And that's a purely endogenous risk. And I can find that in what we do by understanding the supply and demand imbalances and the lack of capital in the sharp world food chain that's playing in these worlds. And and it's funny, I say this all the time, it's funny how often the biggest clump of dry brush finds a spark. It's uncanny. So I, I, one of the best stories, and I'm sure you're aware of this, Jim, you know, in January this year, if you talk to me, and of course, I, you can see I'm never going to really say specifically what we're doing at the current moment in time. But in January of this year, if you'd ask me, what's the cheapest fall in the world? I would have said Euro FX fall. Euro dollar, Euro Swiss, Euro C&H in particular. Now that found a spark when Putin stepped into Ukraine and it stopped being the cheapest FX fall in the world really fast and hasn't been that cheap since. And then funnily enough, you know, shortly thereafter, the cheapest fall was, you know, dollar C&H. And then no sooner than you had gotten that out of your mouth, then it devalues more than it devalued back in August 15th when it was a explicit deval. And so it's funny you know, if you just keep owning what's cheap, it'll it, you get opportunities to recover cost. It, you know, stuff comes along, noise comes along. You build the book with you know good. We talk about layering of convexity, good layers of convexity, so it's efficient to monetize some of the things that are you know lower convex outcomes and and use that to own more through time. This building and building and building through time of the the more convex, more insurance like payout things that that you know you're really trying to hold for when it matters because it's the again it's that that two percentile tail that's where the big payout comes and where the big pain is for the guys we're working with. I'm glad we had a chance to. Uh voice our differences on, on, on this topic in, in such a polite manner. It, it sounds like, speaking of cheap, that maybe at some point in the near future, central bank credibility will be incredibly cheap, And uh, but I don't know how to buy it, uh, I have to say. Um, I will want to try something a little bit different as the last question to both of you, actually, since we are recording just before the end of 2022. Um, and uh, it goes against everything we've said, uh, all of us, about not predicting um, but do any of you, and, I, and I'm kind of inspired by, I think it's Saxo Bank that does these outrageous predictions for the coming year. Do any of you have kind of a, an outrageous prediction that you think it could happen? doesn't have to happen, but it could happen. And I know one of them, one of their ones was like the dollar being pegged uh, at 200 against the yen. I think that's one of their, you know, any... Outrageous predictions, Dave. I'll well, let you uh, go first. I don't know if it's outrageous because I've written about it, but you know, in my, you know, are they going to close the game? Who's going to own the forty? Well, I think what's coming, and again, it goes back to what happened in the in the late twenties. I think capital controls are coming, and I think the the enforced the recycling of domestic savings into sovereign bond markets is almost an inevitability you can't possibly let your nation's savings go and fund somebody else's debt and so just like you know obviously we're seeing the the rationing or the 
rationing of critical energy and food resources, the friend shoring of stuff. We're only going to let oil go to our friends or food. We're, we're holding on to our food. I think inevitably you're going to see the same thing with capital and that places that you, you know, thought would never have capital controls, Japan, UK, Europe, obviously China's will continue to tighten theirs. I think that becomes much more of a norm. And uh, like, in there's a, I remember there's a quote in Eddie Chancellor's new book. He uh, attributes to Keynes saying in 1933 about, you know, nationalism and, and most of all our capital and savings must, you know, must be trapped. So I think that's probably my, what people aren't thinking about that I think very likely could come is increasing forms of capital controls and forced recycling of domestic savings, forced pension funds, holdings of sovereign bonds, forced banks, you know, even greater pressure on banks through the Basel risk-weighted asset methodologies to hold domestic sovereign bonds, that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty uh, pretty interesting uh, suggestion. Jim, do you have uh, anything? Um, yeah, I got okay. a couple. Um, you know, uh, at the risk of sounding bombastic, uh, I, I could see it maybe not one year, but uh, maybe on a two-year time horizon, uh, the 10-year going to uh, above 8%, um, uh, you know, a, a really high number. Um, I think it will likely... Uh, flatline or go, you know, uh, yields will uh, flatline or go lower before, but uh, similar to the late 1960s, I think the Fed is stuck. Um, and uh, I think the more we head into recession and the 10 year stays sticky and long term inflation expectations start to rise, this uh, could, could uh, start to accelerate, um, ironically, into uh, what is now the beginning, likely, of a recession. So it's counterintuitive, but I think, you know, steepener trades um, could be uh, big home runs this year um, in, in a way people are entirely not uh, expecting. And then two, uh, kind of akin uh, to, to what Dave was talking about, price controls um, could really, uh, and, and that's uh, price controls are hidden fiscal stimulus um, and ultimately exacerbate longer term inflation. And I think history tells us that politically, um, when when there's you're between a rock and a hard place, uh, politicians will uh, will have to do things that are unthinkable. Um, you know, Nixon did it. Nixon was the most laissez-faire Republican coming in you could imagine, um, but uh, ultimately did end up doing some of the most populist kind of uh, non-free market policies um, because he didn't have much of a choice. And inflation puts politicians in a really really tough spot. So those are kind of my two. I agree. Well, I, I think that's. I agree good. strongly with that. I, I think that's exactly. I, I you know I don't think they're. I don't think they're solving the inflation problem. I don't think they have the monetary policy will to solve it. I don't think they have you know what it takes. And I'll argue, what it takes is everything that they did in QE was negative value and must be unwound to fix this problem. And I don't see any of them doing 100% QT anytime soon, in which case you get a whole bunch of price controls, in which case inflation doesn't get solved, it gets worse. Yeah, I'll, I'll one-up that. I 100% agree with you, but counterintuitively what they're doing, um, and, and we saw this in the 60s and 70s, this is not, not what most people would say, is exacerbating structural inflation. Yes, cyclically you're helping issues in the short term. It's a uh, 
Uh, but you're ultimately making things worse. Uh, I mean, for two people who don't make any predictions, usually I think we've done a pretty good job uh, in scaring our audience <laughs> as we head into 2023. But Dave, this has been another unbelievable, insightful and fun conversation. Thank you so much for doing this today. We have thoroughly enjoyed it, as I'm sure all of our listeners will. Um, and before we go, let me just encourage everyone to go and follow, subscribe to the amazing content that they produce. Uh, I will, of course, put a link in the show notes because, as you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a truly global macro-driven world and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jim and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro Series. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.